stop lying to yourself. Done deal. I don't care whether you do morning pages, read another 50 books, become somebody, you don't need money. You are it already. Stop, and the invitation is stop lying to yourself. You are magnificent, you are, you are enough, you are a miracle, you are a unique expression of divine force. And I'm not here giving you some woo-woo, come and meet me, I'm who I am now as I am everywhere. You are it. There has never been another expression of life as you. What more do you need to pat yourself on the back to go, oh my Lord, I am worth, I am, I am amazing, I'm contributing here. I'm, just by being me, I'm enough. We actually can recreate all this. We can actually do all of this because we are part of nature. Only we've lost the ability to engage consciously in that part where we see ourselves as active members of a symbiotic relationship with the grand ecosystem, with Mother Nature. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Grassy Hopper podcast. This podcast showcases different interviews where we discuss what it means to really live a nourished life in a lot of different aspects. This week we're going to be talking with Peppi Gauci, a good friend of mine and one of the pioneers of permaculture in Malta. Welcome Peps. Thank you. Nice to see you in a recording studio instead of on the waves, like <laughs> usual. <laughs> Made it through the traffic. <laughs> <laughs> Different kind of surfing than we're used to. So Peps, um, welcome. Thank you for taking the time to come and have a chat. It's really great for me to bring the ideas of permaculture to the Grassy Hopper audience because a lot of the people already resonate very much with these kind of values, but they don't really know what permaculture is. and and they haven't kind of got that overall structure of, of perceiving um, this kind of value system. Uh-huh. And permaculture is a beautiful concept. When I met you, it resonated very deeply with me. And I find myself saying like, oh, that's permaculture. And a lot of random things that, which have nothing to do with agriculture and farming. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so maybe you can start by just giving a little bit of introduction into what permaculture, what permaculture is. is. Yes, for sure. Um, there are many, many different um, descriptions of what permaculture is. In fact, like I've never heard so many different descriptions about an actual word um, as much as permaculture. But just to explain it to the basics of it, there's actually a coin, a marriage between two words in there, the word culture and the word permanence, or so the word permanence and the word culture which our culture is basically based on agriculture. So it's not just about food, you know, everything in our culture today is based on agriculture. Everything is coming out of some way of um, us managing the systems on earth, systems to a certain degree, some managed ecosystems. So what I'm saying is that like, if we just look at the clothes that we're wearing, you know, they were coming out of a crop. They've been cultivated somehow on the ground, you know, and if we look around us everywhere, you know, if we look at the um, furniture around us, that's been a crop that's been cultivated or is otherwise has been stolen from some forest, you know. But the word permaculture basically relates to every, every bit of action that we've somehow down the line had 
in order to have that product, in order to have that produce, in order to have that action that is basically um, holding our culture together. So we are not an, a culture that is dependent on on game. We don't hunt for food anymore. We don't live like um, like Aborigines, for example, do. Um, we are completely dependent on on um, crops, on on um, uh, material, on food that is basically somewhere down the line has been cultivated. And um, the word permaculture turns everything around into these these two people, um, two Australian men, uh, Bill Mollison and David Holmgren, like about 40 years ago, they coined this word together while they were studying um, an alternative way of life, a way of life which will actually embrace the way that we cultivate everything down the line in a conscious way rather than an unconscious way. So when you look at the way that we're, we're living and the way that we're consuming and the, the way that we're like creating waste and you try and turn everything around when you see the problems that that causes in a conventional way and then when you look at things in a way that you can then cycle them together make them make sense make them in a way that they're not harmful in some way or other and then you start being creative about how then you can actually create something which is much more holistic than the system that supports us at the moment and when you look at it deep down it's nothing short of recreating the garden of eden if we have to think think about the garden of eden where where man was in symbiotic relationship with the earth where he didn't have to work so much he, you know he was working less hours if any and where every every bit of um, uh, food or um, uh, or material that he needed was there already within his vicinity and so everything was available in a way already around him right and permaculture is about recreating that how can we recreate systems where everything is around us available there is no waste and we can engage consciously in these systems together how can whatever we take can be symbiotically returned and the system keeps on repeating itself in balance which leads us to to a much overused word in politics today and in our culture to the word sustainability you know, the word sustainability is nothing short of a system which sustains itself. It's not to, nothing to do about like being something which is going to give you a, um, a financial return over a period of time that basically then you call it it's, sustain, it's sustainable. No, it's nothing. It's not or like just that a planting a tree campaign. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's basically something that goes deeper than that, something which actually gives you the idea of something that is sustaining itself. If it doesn't sustain itself, it should be within a system that somehow sustains itself in a symbiotic relationship. Which means that if you have A plus B plus C equals four, not three. Yeah. Yeah. Which is going to give you something even more eventually. So if we had to look, for example, at just a natural forest, okay? A natural forest has all the components in balance, okay? It has the water in balance, it rains regularly, it has the fertilizers in balance, no one goes there and adds any fertilizers or, or sprays any pesticides to kill any bugs which are in there, or fungicide because there's too many, like fungus is growing because it's too moist and there's not enough. No, everything regulates itself. Everything is in balance already, plus it actually builds on resources over time. It doesn't deplete on those resources. And that is something which 
in permaculture we strive and we aim to recreate. We don't want something which eventually will decrease in resources. However, we want to create something which will build up on the resources. So if we look at the forest, the forest is building these resources. It's building more soil, topsoil, there is more water, it's cleaning the water through the living systems that there are. If there is nothing, you know, that's contaminating the water in a chemical or, or, or organic way that is to a hazard of the water composition, right, then the water is clean. Naturally, this is how it was meant to be. You didn't need any artificial forms of fil filtering systems, you know, to get clean water. It was, nature had already done this ages ago. And we actually can recreate all this. We can actually do all of this because we are part of nature. Only we've lost the ability to engage consciously in that part where we see ourselves as active members of a symbiotic relationship with the grand ecosystem, with mother nature. We now think of nature as being separate. Like, let's go and have a walk in nature. <laughs> let's go let's go out in the countryside because we're missing nature no we are part of nature but the nature that we've created around us is not the way that is sustainable is not the way that it's going to keep recreating resources down the line for the future generations for our children right so we have in a way started segregating us by internally by by our consciousness we've started this segregation this division between us and nature but it's actually something which is virtually impossible yeah because we cannot be separate of nature we can only be separate of the idea yeah <laughs> we created the separation just in our minds so this is only happening in our minds so you could actually say that the whole of the permaculture movement is kind of uh, a reaction towards, you say it's only 40 years ago that they coined this term. Obviously the principles that it's drawing from are ancient, exactly. but in a way it's a kind of reaction to, obviously in the in the past exactly. well over 40 years, there's there's been this gradual separation to the point where it's gotten really quite intense. Exactly. Thankfully, these, these two gentlemen, who one of them just passed away a few months ago, Bill Mollison, um, Thankfully, they, one of them, Bill Mollison had already been working in, in forests and um, he, he, had, he had quite a rough, um, varied lifestyle where he was a fisherman. So he was out in, in, uh, out in the wild quite a bit, you know, where, where his life was not in an office or, you know, he was out there and he was doing his own research. And then when he met with David Holmgren, who was one of his students in university through one of his lectures, then they came together and, and David got more... Um, the um, the intellectual part of it, whereas Bill Mollison got more the active part of it and the hands-on part of it, and, and it beautifully merged together. But this was, as you say, it was a reaction to um, to, to seeing what's going on around us, to, to the realization that we're going down a cul-de-sac, basically, um, where we're seeing people in Africa receiving foreign aid through helicopters or, or aeroplanes going there, dropping down food, for instance. You know, you can see the, these footages where you'll see aircraft going down, dropping food in places where food can be grown abundantly to feed everybody. What's missing is the, the, the design system and the, conscious, and the conscious ability for these people to engage in it, right? Because the resources are already there. It's just that the consciousness and the tools and the toolkit to, to be able to manage it isn't there. 
Yeah, in fact, I've seen some really cool permaculture projects of actually creating food forests even within desert conditions. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I mean, for me, I think one of the most amazing, I always, when people ask me about you, <laughs> I always say you're like the cross between like, you know, the ancient knowledge and the foremost of modern technology. And the way I understand permaculture, it's really kind of bringing the best of both together to yes. create the best system. Yes, exactly. It's like that ancient uh, connection with nature within the modern science and technology of how we can harness that to create exactly. a good system. Exactly. I would say, for example, that more than 80% um, of permaculture builds on this, on this ancestral knowledge, on certain wisdom and techniques that came down from, from um, either the, our ancestors or else from tribal people that have brought in this knowledge and basically passed it over. So I w- again, I would say over 80% is nothing new. It's already been there. What's new in permaculture is that it's combined very well together and given a repetitive pattern, pattern that can be easily replicated wherever. And and the way it explains itself, the way that it, it just... Um, translates itself into the language that we can understand it and then we can take it wherever and anyone can understand it. This is the most beautiful and original thing about permaculture and why it makes me so enthusiastic about it. Because like right now we're using a language, right? We're talking in English, you're understanding me, I'm understanding you and hopefully everyone on the other end over there is understanding (laughs) us as well. And permaculture is kind of that toolkit which has a language within it where we can then use that language to get other people to understand it and then see how they can use that same language to fix their problem. So it's rather than giving people food, you know, it's like giving, don't give the man a fish, give him a fishing rod and teach him how to fish. So like rather than feed him once, you you feed him the um, knowledge, how he can feed himself and the future generations for good. And it's the same system. Like here, there is no pattern book. There is no like guidance here, this is how you do it. No, here is like, here's this toolkit and here are these tools and this is how you can use these tools. And then you say, ah, so this fits in here and this we can do this. And ah, I thought about this one here and I used to see my grandfather doing this. And then the picture starts coming more vivid and vivid. The colors start coming out basically out of that distorted canvas that you would have had in the first place. And also I see from my past courses, courses that I've held, courses that I've actually attended to myself, how many people respond to going for a permaculture course once they kind of have tried so many different forms of, I would say, environmental activism, and then they've just about given hope and then they come across this word or someone tells them about permaculture. And you see a lot of people who have down the line been like really active on protesting or organizing some sort of um, um, meetings about the anti-establishment of some sort or other that, that they, they understand that it's not working, you know, for the social and communal um, communal benefits. And then they come across this and for them when they embark on a permaculture journey, all of a sudden there's a big shift from being someone who's a fighter to someone who's a cultivator. Because then the shift somehow turns more inwards and people realize that they've actually got these tools that they can start working with. And yes, we cannot change the whole world, but at least we can change the way that we start looking at things the way that we start reasoning and then the way that we start dealing with the challenges or problems or issues that we come across. And 
it also gives us a beautiful um, way of sorting things out and flipping things from problems to seeing them from another side and seeing the solution or the potential solution in them as well as the network the network of people that are around globally in the global community and hopefully also locally you'll see people patterning and emerging and creating or co-creating projects together and this network then supports people to to just take it further further on and um, and just bring like like me and you are here talking together and just like seeing the opportunities of how we can then elaborate more on it in order for more people to to understand it, to just grab it, to just go and look into it and, and make it theirs as well. Because this is something which, you know, if, in my belief, it should be in the school curriculum, you know, like we should be taught permaculture as the main subject at school more than any other subject because it gives us the ability then to make sense of all the other subjects you know when i was a kid and i was studying mathematics and physics and chemistry and biology for a long time i just couldn't get it why am i here in, in this sunny day you know sitting in this cold room you know and just listening to about how to get these equations right I just didn't get it. It just didn't make sense for me. I was much more interested in looking outside the window, looking at the valley and saying, oh, I wish I could be climbing those trees and playing <laughs> in that soil today. And that's where I went, even though it was out of bounds and got in trouble, you know, as a kid. And for me, I just couldn't engage in a lot of the subjects until much later in life. But if I had to be out there and taught what permaculture is about and how to recreate these systems and how to be much more um cooperative rather than competitive like we get taught at school then it would have made much more sense that this chemistry and this biology is part of this whole other system okay that i can be using further i can be understanding what's going on in the soil to grow these crops for instance or understanding if i'm building a treehouse make it fun for kids why i need these measurements right why i need this um engineering part correct you know Things that then make a lot more sense because we're given part of a much bigger picture that is much more holistic. And today, the way I see things, when I see people getting frustrated, stuck in traffic, going out to pick their kids from school, you know, and all the stress that homework and competitiveness brings about, I see that we are running down towards another cul-de-sac, towards something which is doomed to fail because we are overriding the program. We are just feeding on more than it can feed back because the system is just not sustainable. And at the, the end of the day, it's not an efficient, I always hear your, your phrase, not an efficient use of our resources, no. human, and also when, exactly. we, when we think about the traffic. Exactly, when you look at it, yeah. you see that the system, as it is, the conventional system is designed to malfunction. <laughs> Somehow, somewhere, there's one or many you know who have designed the system specifically to malfunction yeah. because it, if it doesn't malfunction it doesn't keep it doesn't hold yeah you know if your car doesn't break every four or three months the mechanic's not going to be able to make a living of it if your plumbing it does just doesn't go you know within a certain period of time then the plumber's not gonna make a living of it if you know when and, and you keep on looking at one thing after the other you know we and can see julian uh, nodding in the background because he was an engineer and this is one of the things that really drove him mad when he was studying <laughs> it, is, it is if you just look at it 
It's completely designed to malfunction on a number of levels, completely. You, you see those so many things. We'll just be driving through a place just down the road and you know, we'll see how many uninhabited buildings are there. While we're still trashing new, I mean new is like natural places, mm -hmm. places where there, there's no building to just pour more concrete and put more steel pylons in to create more buildings when these buildings are just empty and vacant, you know? And when we can use actually stuff which today is waste and we can reclaim it and, and fix these buildings to make them habitable and livable for people. So somewhere down the line in the legislation, there's a policy which, which screwed up. It's not there to actually make, make good use of the resources that are around and save on money. No, it's the other way around. It's let's trash this place down. Let's just bring and buy more because that's how, what the, how the economy is holding right now today. Yeah, I mean, obviously, <clears throat> our, our economy, one, is funda fundamentally based on the fact that we need growth. So we need more goods and more services to be produced on a yearly basis. And if anyone's interested in this topic, there's a beautiful book called Small is Beautiful. Yes. And uh, its subtitle is Economics as if People Mattered. Yes. And one of the things that he mentions in the book, he has a whole chapter on Buddhist economics. And he says, so what if we designed the economy... So let's say, you know, we have a, a tribe of 200 people. You say, these are the resources that we need. And then we design the economy to produce what we need. Exactly. Instead, we are designing our lives to consume sure. what the economy needs to keep growing, exactly. which is obviously <laughs> a not a very it's a clever... It's system and it's yeah. the other way around. Yeah. So it's not, not only it's a linear system. And by linear, I mean that basically you've got waste at the end and you don't have something which is feeding back into it from what, yeah. it, from what it creates in the first place. No, it's just going one direction. One di and one direction, you know what happens. One yeah. you at some stage or other, you're just gonna get off the cliff. Yeah, and we, we're a very small island, so obviously, I mean, it's kind of in our face because, you know, you have Martap, you've got the sea pollution as well that, you know, in the last couple of years has become yes. a very intense yes. problem. Yes. Also, the runoff of the soil into the sea when it rains, it's, it's very okay. visible that we're losing mm -hmm. a lot of our soil. We have huge problems with the water table. Yes. So obviously for us as an island, it seems almost more important than for anyone else that we have a better design of, of, of our course, system. Yes. Plus something which has superseded history um, to this day is that we've never been so overpopulated as much as we are today. The population has never been as big on the island. And the more that population grows, the more that pressure. the resources and the pressure on the resources are, are, are growing in order to to keep everyone alive and keep not just alive, you know. At the moment, there's all the stress and people just don't know what to do with already all, all, all um, the resources that we've got available around yeah. us. So we're not short of any resources at the yeah. moment, right? Yeah. Um, just imagine, just imagine, just, just a few days without... Electricity. Electricity. <laughs> Bye-bye water. <laughs> or just even without internet, for example, you know. We're not ready to face these challenges. It's going to cause so much stress that people are just going to lose their mind. And we're not trained to keep cool and calm and solve <laughs> our problems. <laughs> you know? It's not in our blood, <laughs> Mediterranean blood. It's far, far of it, you know. We are yeah. living, we're living in a very cushioned and childish system at the moment. Yeah. Whereas as soon as we get the first hit, you know, or first shock into our system, we are nowhere near to being resilient to manage ourselves. And this is for me, for me, it's quite scary, yeah. you know, because when I actually 
start perceiving of all the actions that are going on around and just noticing um, how people are behaving, you know. I'm seeing, oh Jesus, you know, like when I see the products that get bought by most people from the supermarkets, you know, like people are pushing off their trolleys. When I see like, you know, it's a known fact that we are one of the most obese people on the planet here in Malta. When I see the, these challenges on a small island, when I see that, you know, the big petroleum price that there is behind the water that is just in the municipal system that's feeding us our houses, you know, how dependent we are on one system over another, over another, over another, we're like playing a very dangerous game of, you know, the domino effect. Yeah. That's where we are at the moment. So you just take out power from that, for example, it's all going to come crashing down. Yes, exactly. So, Pep, you know, there's, there's so much richness in, in what you're saying. And you've given a really good, I think, macro view of, of the situation and how, how our society can be viewed from a permaculture perspective. But maybe we can talk a little bit more about the microcosm. Yes. So, obviously, for those that don't know, Peppy pretty much incredibly transformed a piece of land in Bahria from what was a very soil eroded, very rocky um, uh, landscape into what it is now, which is a beautiful permaculture farm. Uh, me, myself, I had an amazing, you know, shift, exactly as you said, when I stepped onto the farm and saw the system in its integrity. And, you know, we had Maria here on the podcast in episode two, and she, you know, beautifully described coming onto the farm and how much it impacted her life. And she said this beautiful phrase, like, you know, this is how every, this is how we should be living. It, it feels like home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you've done an amazing thing. It's credit to you and your vision and your hard work that over 12 years you've, you know, built from the ground up this entire, this entire farm. But, you know, for the, the average person who can't go down that route, um, how, how do you think people can start to kind of engage with permaculture in a way that's maybe less radical. Yes, thank you for that. Um, there's two things in two ways, I would say. Um, one, for me, people are always the most um, important resource, okay? Because people hold a lot of capacity within them. So when, when we say people as resources to themselves and to the community that they're living in, yeah? Not, not to the economic system, um, but more because of their capacity to when, when we radically decide that we want to fix a problem, we are very adaptive to the situation that we're in and we can actually fix that problem. It's just that permaculture is a great tool to have beforehand, so it's much more important that we have it at a younger stage in life because then it's in our system. For me, like one of the most different things, for instance, that I've noticed when I, in my travels was when I was in Australia, when I saw that a lot of the children there had a lot more self-confidence and their attitude towards life was very different to the children over here. Um, I'm not going to go into detail on what I think that is, you know, but basically it shows that children given a less stressful um, environment, you know, gives them a more gives them more ability to be able to be more in themselves, you know, and in the attitude that the, the lifestyle basically... And it's, um, I mean, when I visited Australia the first time, I was also quite impressed, you know, because exactly what you said, you know, in Malta, it's kind of easy to have nature separate, but in places where the nature, the force of nature is more in your face, like in Australia, 
you know, you have to check your shoes every time you put them on in case you have a spider in your shoe. And just generally, like the bush and and the yes. the natural environment, things grow so quickly. So it's it's a more tangible presence in life. Mm-hmm. So obviously that has a big impact on 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 the way you view the world and the way yes. you view yourself within it. Yeah. Well, coming back to your question, there's, when I said there's two ways on how like we can make it a bit more personal and just how we can like empower the people. One is like um, to check on more on our lifestyle and do a bit more research into permaculture. There's a lot of YouTube videos which will give us more insight, which will, might also inspire us to engage in some project, small or large, whatever that is. Um, but also we have a permaculture foundation here in Malta and right now we're like looking into how we can engage into, into getting funding for some future projects that we've got in mind because what we've got in mind is to then bring the idea of permaculture design into the urban world where as, as we already know there's a lot of buildings around but there's also some places which are not used properly and there are spaces which you potentially could could um, cultivate uh, not just food, but cultivate places of integrity, places of holistic um, environment, you know, places where you could go and you could take your stuff that you've accumulated from waste to reach out to turn them back into compost, where there might be a community which is engaging in growing of food, you know, the idea of creating that Garden of Eden again. Mm -hmm. Which in a way also brings us more into connection with each other because you know, some, something that Charles Eisenstein mentions a lot, he wrote a book, Sacred Economics, is that, you know, the monetary system means that we live in a world where you can pay for anything. So we've lost that needing each other. Yeah. So we've lost that that trust yeah. for within within the community. Yeah. It's very yes. easy for us to have a very lack and of trust. respect, to approach others with respect, you know, in the first place. To come, you know, where I respect you for what you, for who you are. Um, and just please accept me for who I am and this is what I am and how I can and how and, and let's help each other and how we can improve ourselves in order to be more engaging and, and present with each other mm-hmm. and that is something which then eventually if that had to be engaged will build up on more on the human resources yeah. because then we can be able to be more there able with our time and our skills to share mm-hmm. Whereas at the moment, no one has the time <laughs> and no one's working on their actual skill that, that in, they've inherently been given from birth yeah. because they had to do something else. Yeah. You know, they've got to do something else. <laughs> We're generating sales. <laughs> exactly. yeah. So Pep, maybe we can talk a little bit about, you know, I'm very fascinated by people who change their perspective on life and the way that they live their life probably because I went through a very big change you know mm-hmm. in the last six years the way I think the way I eat the way I exercise the way I relate to the people around me mm-hmm. what I want to do with my life everything's undergone this radical shift and for me permaculture was a big part in that um, I don't know maybe you want to share some of your experiences of the kind of transition period you know mm-hmm. obviously you started as probably just a regular well maybe you were never that regular always had a wild streak but you know being yes. brought up in the system yes. in a regular you know four-walled house now you live you know completely off the grid yeah. Um, well, yeah when I was a child I I think I've always felt this need of wilderness and, and I just as I said most of the time even in classroom I was like either looking out the window into the valley or daydreaming about being out in the wilderness. Um, so I wouldn't say I was a complete regular. <laughs> I was never domesticated. 
It's just myself and my body just didn't yeah. allow that. But anyway, a lot of a lot of people are. But myself, uh, a lot of people are in a way that they've kind of left that domestication get onto them, you know. But but then at some stage or other, they just realize that that's not the way, and that they've they've got the need to integrate in something larger than that. But myself, um, I would say when I was eight. 18. When I even before then, I the first the first um, job I got was when I was 16 years old, and I went into water sports. Luckily, I, I grew near the beach, and I always had that opportunity to to you know be active in in, in life and had an active lifestyle. Um, when I was 16, I got my first job working on 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 a beach, as um, uh, working with water sports, and that got me into water sports instructor, and um, so it was my first kind of summer job. And then when I was 18, before before I was 18, I had met the first traveler in my life. <laughs> and um, his name is Sean Gaskin. He's, he's an Englishman, and, but now he lives in, um, he lives in New Zealand. And um, the first time I met him, I, I could feel that this guy had different energy from other people. He was more positive, he was just more upbeat, you know. And um, his approach to life was different. And for me, it was just like the, he was a beacon, you know. And um, he lived in the same town in Maliha at the time, and uh, I just went in and his place, and there was all these travel books, and I just like started getting buzzed off about like, and he started telling me stories about his travels, and to me straight away I said, ah, oh, this is something that I'd like to do, you know, I don't want to be just hanging around in town like the other <laughs> people, you know, just like you know talking about each other and doing things which aren't inspiring, and uh, I got my first job as a, as a. As uh, I got accepted for this job, anyway, it wasn't a choice, but uh, I was chosen to, to be a clerk <laughs> with the Electricity Corporation, and I knew straight away, I said, okay, I'll go in there for a few months, I'll make money, I'll go straight to India, because that was the kind of place that struck me most, out of like, to go there. And um, when I was 18, I had this job for a few months, just before I turned 19, I was on my way to India. And for me, as soon as I was on the road and, and seeing how different other people live in different cultures and their values and how they approach life and you see people in the streets with nothing but this beautiful smile and light in their eyes just just sparked so much more life in me and I knew that when I'd come back to Malta I was never going to be the same person again as I was you know because then I'm I just literally just imagine like you've been eating rice all your life and then someone starts giving you other other types of much more <laughs> interesting nuts. food. You know, you never want to eat rice again in your life, right? So that's exactly it. And um and uh yeah, what what gave me then much more um drive to just go ahead and, and just keep traveling and, and searching was that even though here there's a lot of beauty and and more that there's still this this um uh, this uh, Basically, this this um, there's too much buildings around us, that, which stops us from being able to reach wilderness easily. And this was one of the first things that drove me into going away, and getting that connection and living with other indigenous people. You know that uh, have a lot more of this connection and skill with the natural habitat. And um, then when I got to Australia, uh, I was traveling, and after about four months. I had an, uh, an incident where we had everything stolen from the car, and I mean everything. All I had left was the surfboard and the drum. <laughs> <laughs> the important things. <laughs> the important things, yes. And that that um, experience, I remember very clearly. As soon as we came back after 10 minutes, I had left everything in the car, literally for 10 minutes, passport, visa, everything. Um, 
I remember very clearly, as soon as we looked into the window, we were like walking back and talking where we we're gonna go next, because we were on the road. There was myself, another Maltese guy, Alejandro, who, who's now sailing somewhere on the other side of the world, and this Finnish girl who had the car, and so we were three of us traveling together. As soon as like, we were talking back from the market after 10 minutes, and we are talking where we are gonna go next, and then I looked through the window, and I said, oops, I don't think we're going there next. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember very clearly, it didn't, it didn't put me off. Something inside me said, even though this has happened, I'm here, I'm barefoot, I'm, I'm still solid. I can survive. Know, I'm just like, we're just going to go ahead. And th- through, that, through that, I remember a decision, like the things that started opening up and the opportunities that started arising from that were just incredible. Um, you know, sometimes it's very easy to just panic or just put, put our tail between our legs and just go back, you know, which sometimes happens. It's okay, you know, but, but when we decide that, no, we're going to keep going, <laughs> Life just gives us that challenge. Just once we go over that challenge, life just then gives us a lot more opportunities to engage. And what happened from then was that I had to find refuge. I had to find a place where I could pitch a tent, you know, I could, you know, stay at least, make something to live with. And we got to the first place and we got um, some work to do on this backpacker's place. There was two, two, uh, an English couple who was looking after the place and they offered us a tent. They told everyone who was backpacking and staying there what had happened to us. And people started turning up with a t-shirt, with a new toothbrush, <laughs> with toothpaste. You know, everything's just starting building from scratch. People just started coming and giving out of their own stuff, you know, to, to help us out. And then I found out about this permaculture farm, which was close by. And I could just go and work there, you know, as a volunteer. Who would stay there as a woofer, like a volunteer that just makes a, a board and, and, a, and a accommodation. Um, and I went there, I didn't know what permaculture was still, you know. Uh, I got there and then I, I met this German guy who used to run it, his name was Wolfgang, and he started, to, you know, telling me about his farm and I showed me around. And when I say farm in Australia, you know, like it's, it's, it's probably the size of Birkir Kara and more of that. And, um, and then I went to his house and he had some books and I started looking into permaculture books and I started all of a sudden this thing started making so much sense, you know, I said, this is what I've been looking for. This is just um, something which, which just has been missing in my life, you know. And when I started seeing the, the indigenous knowledge, just marrying this modern ways of how to just um, create this metrics of solutions to, towards challenges which could be wherever we are in the world, you know. It's basically, it's basically telling us, look, here is a map of how you can reach from where you are, from the shortage of where you are right now, into, into where you would rather be, into where somewhere balanced you would rather be. And for me, that was, that was a big step where even though I had everything taken away, um, in an instant I had everything available straight away within just within just a few days and um the beauty of this was that once once i was engaged in it um, the solutions that started you know presenting themselves they just started cropping one after the other and from this was one big event in my life where if I had panicked, you know, and just called my mom and just please lend me some money, I just need to come back, I would have lost out on all this. But because I, I stayed grounded and I just made the decision that no, I want to keep going, 
and this beautiful thing just just erupted and just came like a big gift, you know, rather than all the other stuff which I had, you know, which could be replaced, just couldn't be replaced. Yeah. <laughs> and um, when when I was there, I, I then got into other places and other farms and people that just offered other opportunities. And I, I took some, you know, and some others carried me from one place to another, met some more interesting people, interesting projects. And then after some time when my visa was running out, even though I didn't want to leave Australia, I, I, I left Australia because my visa was running out, I came back to Malta after some months. And quite honestly, that, that was a big culture shock coming back here for me. I, I Spent, I had quite a few days where I felt depressed, just seeing the amount of traffic, the exhaust from cars around again, you know, and all the hustle and bustle and people stressing and, you know, the, the, the swing that Malta tends to experience from nowadays culture. And I actually, there was a time when I just felt like I would just want to run away again from here, you know, it's just like I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. But after some time, when my, my dad had um, kind of presented me with this, this opportunity to, to just um, do something with the land he had in, in Bahriya, and, and I kind of decided to start. In the, in the beginning, it wasn't much of me just arriving there and having a grand picture of a project. I knew that there was the potential for it, and I knew that I could design it, but I just started more wanting to connect. And it was very hard to connect because there's a lot of elements in a place like that and in a culture like ours where we've got a lot of limiting factors in the sense that our geographic climate as well as our social climate doesn't allow for pioneers to come in and present their ideas and just start striving with them straight away. But like many, like for instance, other cultures as well, you know, they are not so hospitable to certain ideas and certain, certain progressive designs, okay? We have that, that social aspect in us which kind of uh, tries and disempower people like that, yeah. you know, where we try and put down people with these grand ideas um, for some reason or other, not necessarily because we want to, but it's just, you know, it's there. As well as a geographic limiting factor where, as, as you mentioned before, we've got very little soil, we've got a very short, if it's present, rainy period, we don't have depth of soils, we don't, we don't have um, uh, um, a topography that enables us to do these things easily. Um, yeah. We don't have the space. So if you compare, for example, Malta to even just Sicily, even Obviously, Sicily, yes. somewhere like Sicily, it's just a lot more natural resources yes, available to, exactly. to cultivate and create systems. Exactly. So, Pep, I mean, you've put in a lot of energy and stamina to develop this project in Bahria. Um, like, what, what drives you, you know, because it takes such a, a phenomenal amount of energy and belief in some, something really much bigger. Um, so, I don't know if maybe you just want to talk a little bit yeah. about that. Well... I'm 14 years older than, than I was when I started. <laughs> and to be honest, I don't have the same amount of stamina which I did when I started. And um, I think if I had to start that again from scratch today, I either wouldn't have started it or else I would approach it from a much different um, angle today because I don't have that stamina which I had. Um, but back then I had the, the, the vision and the idea that 
if we can, if, I'm sure we can do it here. This is my thoughts internally. I said, I'm sure we can do it here, even though it's not done, because our ancestors had done it, even though now the social climate is different. You know, the social, the, our ancestors had a community. They had much more, uh, a slower pace of life. They had, they lived with the land. They were present with the land. They were, and they had the knowledge. You know, they had the wisdom to look up at the skies and understand what's going on, what's going to happen the next day, what the weather is going to be like, when to do certain things, when not to do certain things. If, if a stone wall had to fall, they were together to, to build it together. And there was a lot more of that community, you know, uh, engaged, engaging in, 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 in stewarding the land, which today isn't there. So even if we get the land and we have money, we still don't have that, you know. Um, so for me, it was the challenge of, of saying, oh, I'm sure we can still do it here, you know, and I'm sure that the few elders that are still around can just translate some inspiration and some knowledge, and while at the same time, I'm sure I can inspire some people to, to partake in the vision. And along the way, a, long, a lot of people partook in the vision, momentarily, for a few days, for a few months, even for some years on and off, people that volunteered, helped, you know, and in some way or other. And I don't know exactly where the energy comes from. But for me, the vision is just to actually showcase that with this toolkit, with the permaculture toolkit, you can redesign the landscape in a way that it was meant to be, you know, designed by nature in the first place, in a way that it can build on the resources, in a way that it can create a microclimate where biodiversity can be hand in hand with the productivity that we intend to create. When I say that is what I what I mean is that if, if I want to create an, a space to grow crops, I can look at it in a different way than just creating a, a space where I would kill everything else in order to grow the crops. No, in a way that you can create a biodiverse system which will support the crops, a diversity of the crops, will at the same time invite whatever um, nature there is around to partake in it. So if you've, if you if you've got um, an agroforestry a system where you've got a forest garden, for example, you've got those trees and plants which you directly take something, you know, you're directly taking the fruit, whereas others which are there on purpose to recreate that biodiverse resilient system which are going to attract microorganisms or macroorganisms to be in balance with each other. And by this I mean um, crops which would otherwise, or when I say crops, it could mean a tree, a bush, a shrub, a, a perennial, an annual, whatever that is, but um, plants that would then um, bring the, uh, the natural flora, such as even invite mycelium from mushrooms to recreate the, the natural balance of natural fertilizers which are needed, um, of and obviously the flora that then would attract certain insects and certain insects which would attract certain birds and certain birds which would attract and, and bring in with their feces other seeds, you know, and so you recreate all of this by understanding the pattern of how nature would do it in the first place. And for me, this was the vision of it, you know, of looking at the, in Malta, a lot of our landscape is, is characterized by garik, and what the garik is, is a garik is what what would have been probably, okay, this is my theory, but probably it would have been a forest a million years ago or a few thousand years ago. But over time, because of some form of impact, some which would have been geographical over time and some are man-made impacts, 
nature had to adapt to a climate change where the soil was getting to be eroded. There was less soil then. The soil was going closer to the rock. And so the plants that lived there before, where the soil was deeper and there was more water, in order for them to survive, they had to adapt to a new climate. So over hundreds of thousands of years, they started growing smaller and smaller and smaller with deep tap root systems to go further into the rock, right? And this is the character of our rocky landscapes today. If we had to go today, which is a good kind of winter day for us, you would see the wide diversity of plants, you know, and the diversity of plants that come to life and just like out of the rock and say, how is this happening? <laughs> this is the resilience of nature and how nature is then trying to recreate. Nature is in no hurry. For nature, a thousand or 10,000 years is nothing. Even a million years is nothing. So nature is in no hurry. Nature just uses its own time within its own way to recreate, but nature is always recreating the garden, recreating the garden which builds on resources. So if you look at that little garig, if you look at the wild thyme, if you look at um, the heifer, if you look at certain types of other small bushes that manage to live, what they're trying to do, apart from surviving and feeding the bees with their flowers and the nectar and just recreating that pollination and helping others trees to pollinate by hosting food for the bees, which are, which are you know, in the area, but what they were also trying to do is they're building up on the carbon, which is the, the basic element of life form, as we know it, okay? I'm not saying like, <laughs> of years ago it could have been silica, yeah. but right now carbon is our building block of life. And what they're trying to do is, as soon as they, they have their season and leave, okay, that is using present time solar energy right now and then from the sun, Okay, so they're using direct solar power. They're building carbon. Once, they, once that is done, they drop that, that leaf onto the ground, that carbon gets turned into soil. So this is how nature is working, building up on soil through direct solar energy, through direct solar time power. And this is where we are aiming to go with permaculture. This is where I was aiming to go once I had this vision of, of recreating this Garden of Eden in, in Bahia is where we can actually create most of the resources, if not all, that we would need. So the carbon to create the soil, the elements that would need in order to create fire, if you want to create food, you know, so you'll have some trees and shrubberies that you can cut down, the pioneering um, uh, plants that grow fast, as well as the trees that are the longer period, um, the, what we would call the, um, the long-term trees, the long-term flora basically. So you have a matrix of, of trees and plants put together which will support a diverse system that then will also invite the other from the other macrocosm. Yeah so I mean this is obviously like one of the you could say the tragedies of the modern agricultural era is the whole monoculture which is basically doing the complete opposite of what you described. It's just kind of cutting out as much life as possible and just focusing on one kind of plant? Unfortunately, yes. Um, the farmers of today, the conventional farmers of today, have been are a product of the late 70s, 80s, when that was an era where 
everything was come and go, you'd have a problem, here's a solution in a bottle. Mm -hmm. This is what you do today. And in order for you to stay competitive, you've got to use this. Because if you don't produce enough, if you don't produce it in time, you're not going to make it. Yeah. You know? And when you were a farmer and you had no other form of education, that's all you knew. So you were forced because you didn't have a supporting system. And to this day, there is no supporting system for farmers who want to go an alternative way. Yeah. I think this is one of our biggest challenges, right? This is one of the biggest challenges, yes, because we don't have, we don't have a vision, a holistic vision. When I, turn, when I say this, I say this on a na nation scale, okay? Yeah. We don't have a vision, we don't have a program, obviously, because we don't have the vision. Because we don't have the program, we're not supporting the new land stewards, the new growers. I wouldn't even call them farmers, mm -hmm. because farming for me is just already something distorted. Yeah. <laughs> the new people that, that, that are could be uh, working as land stewards, working as growers, in a different form of establishment completely. And this is what's needed today. This is why we need to put this in an understanding where we have this challenge and we have this solution. And for this solution now to be actually be implemented nationwide, we have to address it. And the way we're addressing it is by saying, listen, this is the problem and this is a potential solution. Let's create a policy that's going to enable us, okay, to support this new growth. Yeah. The, you know, the thing is with us humans is that often like facts alone are just not powerful enough. I think it's funny because we're kind of in this kind of catch-22 where to resonate with the permaculture vision, you need to be connected to nature. When you're connected to nature, it just kind of comes naturally, you know, you're like, this just makes sense. Yes. Obviously, we don't have that connection to nature, so we can't really understand the permaculture vision, which is what we need to be able to get closer to nature. Yeah. Yes. In fact, in the podcast with Maria, we were also discussing a lot of the inner permaculture because... It's all good, it's all well and good saying, you know, we need to dis design these kind of systems, but how can we make ourselves the right people within to reflect these permaculture values? Because a lot of the time what stops us on a policy level and, and even just on a simple level, yes. the daily action of our life yes. is, you know, lack of discipline and lack of care and a lot of things which... Yes. Nature yeah. itself, you know, if you if you look back to how we did live in a tribe, in tribes, or even in just small villages, where everyone knew each other, everyone depended on each other, everyone respected each other, even just simple uh, things like childcare. You know, nowadays it's again a monetary system, but you know, in days gone by, children were raised by the community. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's definitely how I see it. You know we as people need to be experiencing permaculture within ourselves mm -hmm. and this is i think a challenge also that the foundation uh, faces and how can we give people this this permaculture experience Indeed. and how can we continue to transform ourselves so that we can be better stewards of the land in fact um the three ethics the three main ethics of permaculture are earth care being number one people care number two and the fair share of resources number three the return of the surplus number three and for me um although they were very important the three of them i think i was much more connected with the earth care for quite a number of years in my life and i think it's because for me it was the more visible out there challenge that i saw myself as in my youth i had the stamina to actually engage in so that it, it's there now it's there now you can actually tangibly experience it, it you cannot just see it you can walk through it you can touch it you can smell it you, you can, can hear it. it you can eat it <laughs> it's there 
right? Over the last, I would say, years, if not even months, the people care ethic is coming much more, um, not that it's always been there, don't take me wrong, and I've always like esteemed and valued people, but there's a deeper level of understanding, and that is within myself, the, the people care ethic, into actually being more present. And by being more present, how can you be more present if you're not more present with yourself? And, and by listening to your patterns, and to understanding your thoughts, and to understanding your feelings and how you deal with them, you cannot actually go forward with that. You cannot actually be available to show others how. You can only lead by example, right? So if you can actually maintain that within yourself, that presence, the inner permaculture, the, the microclimate within, then you cannot actually um, affect, influence people about it. But apart from myself, there are a lot of other people that work with the second ethic, the people care ethic, you know, the people as people as people, people as community, people as resources to themselves and the community that they live within. And um, it is very important here, that we understand this, that we go a bit deeper into it. Um, however, I don't see that our culture supports that much, either this, this, this ethic. And um, one, because our level of spiritual engagement is, I think, very shallow, unfortunately, we, for somehow or other, we have gone somewhere, somewhere we have gone wrong, you know. I'm not going to stand here and try and justify that or point my fingers at whatever religion we, we you know, engage in or whatever we, we embrace, but somewhere, somewhere we went deeply wrong, you know, where we don't, we do not value the spiritual um, evolution within ourselves that much, that we manage to turn inwards and understand this and and work on ourselves that much. So we don't look after ourselves that much. And when we don't look ourselves that much, how can we look our, uh, after others that much? You know, we can't even look after ourselves. We are engaging in bad habits and bad thinking patterns, you know, where we get negative about ourselves in uh, ways that cause us harm. So if we're doing that to ourselves, then how can we actually do better? Sometimes we can, but it can only be periodic, yeah. you know? The There's pattern is always a, there. A lot of room for improvement. Yes, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So yeah, I mean, obviously I'm very, I'm a very people care <laughs> focused person. And, and something I noticed from a very young age is that when people come together, I was involved a lot in NGOs when I was younger and every time, you know, we had meetings, there was always conflict and differences of opinion and, and it seemed like there was never really a good system that would help us to resolve conflict and, and come together and, and have something that was more important and it was actually a source of deep frustration for me. You know, along the way I've kind of found my own practices which I've used to become a better person in community and um, I've sort of created these microcosms for myself. But I don't know if you can share maybe some, I don't know if permaculture has, you know, a set of practices that people in community can use, want to go within themselves, but also to have more harmonious relationships with others. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, again, permaculture is a big umbrella term. And although it, it um, enables this toolkit to be used in different methods, I've seen that there's different communities who have embraced permaculture as their leading way into 
creating their lifestyle and supporting their lives. And they, there is different communities that use different ways of coming together and sorting out issues, coming over their challenges, their personal challenges, personal battles, you know. Because yes, each one of, each one of us have their own issues, they have their own challenges, and no one can come in and say, okay, let me solve this out for you. They can come and help you, they can come and inspire you and direct you, but you still got to do the work. Everyone's got to do their own work. You know, that's why we're here. And if we don't do our own work, then we've missed on the opportunity to get it done. No one else can come and do it for us. Um, and we don't want to be those people that at the end of our lives, we just say, listen, I could have done this, this and this, but I just didn't get up off my seat and started to do it, and started to work on it. I want to be that person at the end of the life where I would say, okay, I've had these challenges, I've managed to get over this, this and this, maybe I could have done better, but at least I've tried. And um, to come to the question of um, sorting out challenges and issues and conflicts between people, today we have a lot of tools that help us. And permaculture itself, if you see within the permaculture literature and, and, um, and communities, there, there has been a lot of these tools which have been used, such as like sharing circles, um, where people are actually giving a time where they are all sitting together and where they are using a pattern of how then they can speak and voice their issues without being judgmental and abrasive towards others, but by just going within themselves and saying how they themselves are feeling rather than how other people are making them feel or what other people are causing them to them. And and, and again, this, this replicates some form of met methodology which some ancestors have used in the past. For example, the Native Americans have done this um, within some communities where you had the talking stick and the talking stick went around. So not everybody's just jumping over each other and shouting, but no, you just stay quiet until you get your turn to voice yourself. And and if, if that didn't get resolved, then the elders would have to take a decision to solving that problem. And again, within our culture, we, we need these methods to, to be engaged in our lives, in our communities. We need to adapt them. We need to, so it's a, big, it's a big change again for us to understand them and start implementing them in our lives and implementing them in, in, in our communities because uh, they're not there. And non-violent communication, for example, is another method of just going forward into solving out these issues. There are others such as um, uh, places, places with a soul, for example, and finding this is just this is also about um, getting people and communities together to, to, to design architecture and recreate arch architecture that, that serves nature and people together. So looking for the soul of the place. Um, rather than just going from the ego and thinking, yes, this is what I want. I don't care about you know this and this, and if I have to take down the no, it's it's a different approach altogether into how to respect what there is and bring out the characteristic and the soul of what there is, as well as then serving the needs of the community that that is going to make that change. It's going to to create shelter for themselves, for example. So there are a number of a number of methods that. Um, people can use. But permaculture just 
allows. There is no one way or or, or route to it. Yeah. It's, it. It just says it needs it to be done. It needs to be done. Yeah. And here are some ways, but it doesn't say that these are limited to this. Yeah. So. Obviously, every community has to find the one that that matches for them. I mean, exactly. again, Maria was talking about her experience in Bali, which is a totally different culture, and the way people gather and share and and communicate is just very, very different. And that was something that she had to adapt to mm-hmm. um, in creating the Kulkul farm. Exactly, because each culture has their own. You know, you cannot take whatever works here and go wherever in Kenya or wherever and, and it's going to work there not necessarily it can yeah. do but not necessarily yeah. and uh, so you need to understand the culture of the people and, and the way that they interact and how they get together yeah. and just see what's going to work for what's going to work best for them yeah. and um, for us it was not going a long time ago and you were present it was last weekend when we had a permaculture meeting and um, when people ask me as to like, okay, what's the next? I said, okay, let's let's put a mind map together. Let's start just putting the ideas, segregating them so that they can make a bit of sense, and let's start putting out there so that we can all see them. And I wasn't sure how the second step was going to follow, but it was I I, I can't remember exactly who it was. I think it was Simon who said, and okay, now let's just how are we going to go for the next step? And I said, okay, let's take three items of each of that map that each each one of us like so no one's forced to do anything but everyone just picked up on whatever they resonate most with because that's where they're going to feel more comfortable at working on yeah. mostly and then we told we, it was our, our decision it was our responsibility to take those three and um, works paragraphs issues challenges that we're going to be working with and we're going to take our own time to deal with them and then we're going to come back together and see where we've come from from time A to time B. Yeah. So so these are all different methods, you know, and not necessarily that they're gonna work straight away, but it's good that we look into them and, yeah. and try them out. Yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. So but I think we're maybe come to the end of of this podcast. Um before we close and I'm gonna ask you one last question, I just want to you know, highly recommend your courses um, to the people. As I said already, you know, coming to the Bahri Oasis and, and stepping into this permaculture world um, had a very big impact on my life and, and the lives of many others. And it's very exciting that the farm, you know, we ha- hasn't been a course now for a little bit of time, but now we're kind of working towards um, the new set of courses, which will be coming soon. So um, you can keep up to date with those through the permaculture Facebook page and website. Yes, um, right as we speak, um, uh, our website administrator is working on putting the new pages on um, because it's it's been outdated for quite some time. Uh, but as we speak, we're also working on um, creating a space for the next courses. So right now we're still a bit um, tangled with our hands full at creating the space, yeah. at working like on the inf- on some of the infrastructure, but. I would say by the end of this year we would be looking at the new courses to be to be on the timetable on the calendar yeah. <laughs> and for people to be you know invited to just make make those few days available yeah. for themselves that's very exciting to be engaging and finding their community yeah. and, and get inspired to yeah. integrate this in their life i just want to add one thing as well as part of the the vision of the permaculture research foundation is also to engage different companies to come and have days at the farm 
um, where they will experience permaculture um, exactly. and then hopefully join in to a co-creation of exactly. the projects on the farm and bring exactly. in a support system. So, you know, this is again a very beautiful community link where the farm has something to share. Yes, and, um, exactly. This is what I was thinking of using the space and using the permaculture knowledge to create a multiple win scenario, create a symbiotic relationship between what we do and with what companies can do and the resources that we've got and the resources that some companies have in order to co-create some projects together. And we need some resources, they need the space and maybe they need um, some of our resources as well. And I think together we can co-create that part of the vision which is for me next in order coming for manifestation. Yeah. Um, so anyone out there listening who, who thinks that this would go well with their company and maybe you want to share the permaculture email and I can also put it in the in the show notes as well yes um, permaculture email is permaculturemalta at gmail.com um, but also if you type permaculture Malta you would get yeah. the website Google, on Google knows you <laughs> amazing Pep thank you so much for your time um, just to finish off I like to ask everyone sort of if you could summarise or just whatever pops into your mind like to you um, something important when it comes to living a nourished life? To me, what's important in living a nourished life is making time for first myself in order to be engaged, grounded within myself and um, be able to be present and in order to be present then for others which are in the close vicinity, not to be present and to watch in the news in the evening, but <laughs> that's the time that I have to be able to engage with the others around me and to also very much look after my diet and look after the well-being of my physical body you know in order to be present able to just use my body to the best of, of my ability and to stay inspired to stay inspired and to just keep keep on looking at the bigger picture and uh, although the challenges come along the way and sometimes they do take a few of it a few levels of your battery you can always replenish your battery by staying inspired yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm an inspiration addict I think <laughs> well thank you Pep that's beautiful you know what you said they're making time you know it's so important because we're we were discussing it um, not long ago you know the bug of being busy and we all feel like we don't have enough time but you know time is a resource which we just need to manage effectively and at the end of the day it's just our discipline um, and the, the inspiration that makes us want to discipline ourselves to use our time more effectively. I think it's something we all exactly. kind of struggle with. If you wake with, up so. and you're lost, you have nothing to like drive you forward. Exactly. It's okay, but you know. Yeah. Um, Find uh, that something that's gonna. Yeah. If, yeah. You, if you're positive <laughs> with it and you're happy just to be there, yeah. it's good. You know, it's okay. <laughs> you don't need to do anything to stay there. But if, if you like need something to get you out of your current situation which you, yeah. you know you don't resonate so much with then find something that inspires you and yeah. start driving towards it yeah. fantastic thank you so much pep thank you thank you for the opportunity to share this with you <laughs> beautiful
Produced by Monochrome Keys. Holiday tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Did you know there are over 10,000 wine grape varieties worldwide? Here's to thousands of gift possibilities. My go-to holiday wine is Chardonnay. I love it with turkey and potatoes. Pile on the gravy. Let me show you our more than 8,000 party-perfect wines that are in your budget and out of this world. Whether you're entertaining or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection with you this holiday. Now offering same-day delivery at TotalWine.com. Cheers! Holiday tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. My friends still rave about the Prosecco I brought last year. Let me help make your Friendsgiving unforgettable. Bordeaux is one of the world's most popular red blends, made from Cabernet, Cab Franc, and Merlot. It also makes the perfect gift for your picky boss. Having turkey and all the fixings? I suggest an easy-drinking Pinot Noir. For white drinkers, try an unoaked Chardonnay. Whether you're entertaining or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection with you this holiday. Now offering same-day delivery at TotalWine.com. Cheers!